chapter 5 this morning. Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, help us. This morning, as we look at your word, that we will, again, as we've said every week, that we will be drawn close to you, and that we will not merely be trapped into gathering data and just being some sort of uh, library of truth, but that we will be transformed by your spirit, uh, as we've seen in the book of Acts already in the first five chapters, when people come in contact with Jesus, they are radically transformed. And so we ask you, Lord, to transform us, draw us close, and work in our hearts. Protect us from error, but also protect us from deception. And so glorify yourself in our study. Amen. So last week, as, as uh, Ken talked about, we were introduced again to Ananias and Sapphira. And um, today we will be looking at the results of the whole Ananias and Sapphira activity. Starting in verse uh, 17, we, we mentioned verses 12 through 16 last week to get the message. I'm not going to continue on that section. We're just going to jump right into verse 17 through the end of the chapter. So follow with me as I read. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the uh, prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of his life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all descendants of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, quote, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Quote. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were, they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them... They set them, the, them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutius rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. 
he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people. And after him, he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan, or this undertaking is a man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So he took his advice. Excuse me. For some reason, my connection with my life just failed. I need to call it back. Do you need counseling? Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me about rings. Um, let's see, working it up. So he took his advice, verse 40, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Okay. Uh, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name and every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus that Jesus that the Christ sorry that Jesus it's an interesting text it's interesting at a number of levels there's all sorts of things that could be said in this text although we're going to camp on a few of them We'll probably highlight a number of them, but there is one general theme that shows up throughout the text. And the general theme is a trust in the sovereignty of God. And in fact, it, it, this comes in at an appropriate time because, of course, this is as an aside, many of you know that this, this coming October 31st is Reformation Day. It's the day that Martin Luther cast the, the 95 Theses up on the wall. One of his one of, one of his emphases was on the sovereignty of God. Now, his obvious major emphasis was upon salvation by grace through faith alone. But at the same time, one of his major emphases was the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God shows up here dramatically in two different ways. There's a number of things going on, though, within this discussion of the sovereignty of God. And so we want to see them. So we're going to wander our way through the text, and we're going to observe a number of things, but we're going to focus on those, that, that major theme shown two ways. So, starting verse 17, the high priest is not a happy camper. Because of what? Because of not Ananias and Sapphira, but because of the teaching that's flowing out of the events of Ananias and Sapphira. I don't think they could care at all about Ananias and Sapphira. But because of the teaching and the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the name and the fame of Jesus Christ is flowing everywhere because of the gospel, and because of Ananias and Sapphira's death, and combined that with the fact that Peter is performing a number of miracles and people are being healed. So the name of Jesus and the salvation that Jesus brought is being proclaimed everywhere. And many thousands are coming to faith in Christ. And even those who aren't have, at this point in time, high respect for Jesus' followers and the message. But the high priest is not a happy camper. And you notice that in verse 17, it starts out with the word but. And all those who are with the high priest. And, the, and in parentheses in my text, it says the party of the Sadducees. And notice what it says next. They are what? Filled with jealousy. What are they jealous about? Well, because frankly, they were the pinnacle before, weren't they? They were the highlight. They were the focus. If they made any questions, they turned to these leaders. 
now suddenly the people are turning to Peter and the other 11. Aren't they? So they're filled with jealousy, and that jealousy is revealing what they're really after, right? Were they after the kingdom of God? No. And by the way, this is, again, an aside, but it's a very interesting um, observation here. They would claim, if, they, if you were to talk to the Sadducees and, and all the priests and the high priests, if you were to talk to them and say, are you after the kingdom of God, they would have said, absolutely, are you stupid? What else would we be after? But as you heard me say many times, talk is when push comes to shove and the evidence starts to weigh against them as in the, not the evidence but the situation begins to weigh against them what begins to happen they begin to show their cards, don't they? and with their cards show real quickly that although their words said that they were after the kingdom of God in reality they were after their own kingdom now if I may pause this for just a second because the Sadducees, the high priests, and all the other priests that are with them are clearly the religious people today, are they not? Is this not instructive today? It absolutely is. Talk is cheap. It's really easy to say, yes, I'm after the kingdom of God. Yes, I'm after, I'm after glorifying God in every way possible. But then when events turn against them, the true person and people they are begin to evidence itself. When, if I may bring it to modern day, it's really easy to say that when the, when the tables turn, when the, when the events of life, the circumstances we find ourselves in begin to turn against us, you know what begins to show itself real quickly? Our true colors and what kingdom we're after, doesn't it? It happens. If I may just pause this, again, this is just an aside, so I don't want to spend too much time on this, but you've heard me say it before. I spend some time on Facebook every morning, early in the morning, reading through what various people that I'm friends with post. And a lot of those people are unsaved, but a lot more of them claim to be believers. And I am just stunned regularly, almost inevitably, how often people will trumpet the things of God. But then when life turns against them, situations and circumstances turn against them, it's amazing how in their posts everything changes. And suddenly it's not their kingdom. Suddenly it's, woe is me for I am undone. But it's not because I'm a man of unclean lips and I am among the people of unclean lips. It's, woe is me, I'm undone because my situation is bad. It is, oh my goodness, if only you heard all those statements are many others? Those are nothing more than Sadducee. They're jealousy. And then when you have the contrast, and I see it oftentimes, even the contrast, and I'm stunned by the contrast I see when people compare and contrast with those other people. We may fall into this if we corporately. Let me give you an example, a very easy example, especially today. Here we are, a really small group of people, aren't we? There she is. We got one more. And we got one more. A small group of people. And then we meet somebody else. Ever happened to you? We meet somebody else who's a Christian, and they're going to a big church, and it's a big growing church. And what starts to happen when I'm careful? Peter. Does that make sense? It happens. It happens regularly. 
And what, what does that mean when jealousy starts rearing its ugly head? Or fear starts rearing its ugly head? Or anger? Or doubt? What does that say? We don't trust the sovereign one. Yes! Which gets into the real text of the story here. Our, our faith and our hope and our trust is not in a sovereign God who loves us and who's after something. And who, who's working his plan. That's not where it is. Instead, where is it? It's not a different kingdom. That's what it is. And I think it's really important that we, we realize that these are not merely historical stories, but there's, there's an interesting interplay between the events that we find in the book of Acts with the events we find ourselves in. These events that happen in our lives reveal where's my heart and what am I after? Can I just ask you a quick question and then we're going to get off of this one? Does it matter if we're this size? Does it matter? That's a really important question because for a lot of people it does. Does it matter? The answer should be no. The only answer that should matter is what? If we're glorifying God or not. That's the only real question. If we're honoring God and being lights in the midst of darkness or not, corporately and personally. If we are, then this is God's plan. That makes sense? Again, I find it really stunning to me when I look at Revelation 2 and 3 and I see the statement by John, obviously inspired words of God, when he's talking to churches that are absolutely off the rails, except for just a few. And he doesn't tell the few to go on this way, which is what you'd expect today. Wouldn't, wouldn't he? He says, stir up what remains. That's what he says. Stir up what remains. And what do people do today, though? Quite to the contrary, what people do today is, I'm going to go somewhere where it's happening. And my answer to that statement is, by what standard do you know it's happening for God's glory? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, right? By what standard do you know it is or isn't happening for God's glory here? But we are such, in a, in a, in a if I may use different terms, in one level, we're in such a, a consumer mentality in regard to the church, but in a more important biblical term, we're in so much of a man's kingdom mentality, if you use a biblical, more biblical term, a man's kingdom mentality than a God's kingdom mentality. And I think it's really important that we get that. I remember back when we were much larger than we are now, one of the uh, leaders of our church, who I won't tell you who it is, but their church is no longer with us, was troubled by the size of our church and that we were shrinking. And I said, what's the trouble? And he said, well, I hear all you're saying, Steve, but, but he said, how can we possibly make a difference with this small group of people? And we're a lot smaller now than we're then. He said, how can we possibly make a difference for God with this small community of people? Now I'm using my word, they're not his. And I looked at him and said, God use Paul. Are you kidding me? Paul. In Acts chapter 2, he used Peter. In Revelation 2 and 3, he just said, stir up what remains. And by the way, you can say, well, yeah, but look at all the great things God did with Paul. At the end of his life, everyone left him. Didn't they? 
Everyone left him. Did Paul say, huh, I guess I better start a whole new church? No, he didn't say that at all. He didn't tell Timothy in the last days, Timothy would kind of come to start another church. What did he say? Yeah, but what he, he made a personal, didn't he? He said, but you, however, continue in what you've learned. Isn't that interesting? Our mindset is so different from the scriptures. And here we find these Sadducees and the high priest and all the other priests that are with them. They're all jealous. Why? Because, woo, things are happening there. If they're after the kingdom of God, should they be like, oh, man, things are happening there? Or should they be, woo, things are happening there? What should it be? They should be rejoicing, shouldn't they? If God's really work? By the way, we're in Acts chapter 5, 17, the end of the chapter. So that's, again, that's an aside. They're filled with jealousy. Verse 18, they do what? They go out and arrest the apostles, all 12. They arrest the apostles. This is the third imprisonment now. We're early in the book of Acts. Third imprisonment. That's important in this text. Third imprisonment. And this time, before it was always one, now, or one, and then three, but now it's twelve. Put them in prison. Public prison. And the idea of public prison is beating and mocking what's going on. Okay? But, verse 19, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. A couple things. Obviously, this is our first introduction of this text to the sovereignty of God. It's there, isn't it? It's right there. The people did what? That is, the leaders did what? They put them in prison. They locked them up. They couldn't get out. Who's in charge? <clears throat> I would submit to you, he's not just in charge, it's easy to be deceived in this one. He's not just in charge in the lock, unlocking the doors. He's sovereign over the locking of the doors, too. He's sovereign over the arrest in the meetings. He's sovereign over it all. In other words, what God is doing is he is setting up the Sadducees to exposure and to the glory of Christ in the gospel. See, interestingly enough, the, 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 the high priests and the Sadducees and, and the rest of the priests have heard the gospel once, haven't they? Chapter 4. But God's not done with them yet, is he? Now he's going to have them hear the gospel again. But the way he has to hear the gospel differently is for the entire group of apostles, now they've been put into prison overnight. And now he's going to set them up. He's going to set the, the, the leaders up to hear the gospel unified among a large group, not just a couple. So, the sovereignty of God shows up immediately because in the middle of the night, the angel of the Lord comes and opens the prison doors and brought them out and said, one more thing I want to say to you before we get off verse 19. And that is, I've heard people say about verse 18, about verse 19, and hear it regularly, and other passages that do the same thing. They take, they cherry pick, let me use the term, they cherry pick these great events. 
like opening the opening the prison here, like Paul and Silas being released out of prison, like Daniel with the what the lions then, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with the furnace, and they cherry pick these stories. They're important stories. They cherry pick these stories and say, "See, if God can take care of them, He can take care of you." They hear it all the time, and they miss the point of the end of uh, Hebrews chapter twelve. Remember, anybody remember what he, end of Hebrews chapter? I'm sorry, end of Hebrews chapter eleven. Anybody remember what end of Hebrews chapter eleven says? Some some of the followers of God were what sawn in two. They were destitute. They wandered about in caves. And it wraps up by saying what men of whom the world was now worthy. It's interesting that God, through the writer of Hebrews. Singles out the ones who who suffered and died to be the ones of whom the world's not worthy. I think it's important that we see both. See, we only see the one side. This is amazing, right? He's in prison. They're all in prison. Twelve people in prison. God sends an angel. And the angel knocks the door. Woo! That's awesome. But on the other side of that point are people who are going to die for Christ. There are people who are going to suffer for the gospel. And can I just submit to you, for everyone God does this to and for, he probably does 10,000 or more that are suffering by So let's not, let's keep the story in its context and not think that it's universal. Does that make sense? But in this story, God uses an angel, verse 19, opens the doors and sends them out. What's the point of seeing this, these contrasts? In either case, in this case, he does it. In other cases, he doesn't. Right? Why does he do it in this case and many other cases not? Here's why. Because he's got a goal. He's got an end goal. What he's, what he's shooting to accomplish is called his plan. And his plan will always come to fruition. And here is exactly what happens. He lets them go for a very important reason so that they can minister to and deal with and call the Sadducees and the high priests and all the leaders of Israel for repentance. Follow it along. So they're released and told, verse 20, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of his life. And the words of his life are referring to the life in Christ. Verse 21, and when they heard this, that is the apostles, they did what? They went to bed because they were tired. They went to the doctor because they were sore and hurt. That says? No. It says what? They entered the temple when? As soon as the temple doors were open, they were there. I, I can just picture this. Can you picture it? It's Black Friday at the temple. I really believe that. I don't think that they were, that they showed up at the doors when they were being unlocked. I suspect what the disciples did as soon as the angel released them, they went to the temple mount waiting for the doors to be unlocked so they could go up on the temple mount and begin to preach the gospel, the good news. I suspect, the text doesn't say this, I suspect there was this massive prayer meeting breaking out outside the doors. It was like, again, Black Friday at Walmart. Can't wait to get in, except they're not mugging people once the door's open. 
They're bringing the light. They're bringing life. And in they go. As soon as those doors are open, in they go. And people begin to stream in immediately. Uh, continue in verse 21. Now when the high priest came, and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the Senate, all the people of Israel, and said to the prince to have them brought. In other words, the high council didn't know what happened the night before. That's simple. They didn't know. They gathered together sometime that morning, unknowledgeable about the reality that's been released, and they came together to determine what to do with regard to the apostles who they think are in prison. Sovereignty of God changed the story, didn't tell them. Verse 22. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards hanging the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. In other words, something really supernaturally happened, right? Something mysterious happened. The guards are there. The guards think, they've been there all night, the guards think that the, that the uh, apostles are still in the prison. So, I mean, it could very well be that they fell asleep. Or it could possibly be that the angel of the Lord deluded the minds of the guards. So they didn't even see what was happening around them. Well, who knows? The simple matter of fact is the guards didn't have a clue. You get the picture that when, when, when the word came out, bring the prisoners to us, they turned around, they unlocked the doors, opened the doors up and looked in, and lo and behold, nobody's there. Talk about being befuddled. As they reported back. Verse 24. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them. You think? Wondering what this would come to. What's going to happen next? Now their minds have to be racing. Don't they? They know that Jesus rose from the dead. The story's out there. If they didn't personally see Jesus, the story's out there. So whether they believe it or not, they know the story's there. They may very well have even seen Jesus raised from the dead. You know, alive for those 40 days. Don't know. But they had to know that Jesus walked out of the tomb, at least the story. What you really have here is a, a picture of what happened just a short while before. Do you not? you see it? Was Jesus not put into a tomb? Is that not a picture of prison? In the scriptures, is death not described as a prison? Does not the scripture say he set the prisoners free? He's referring to those who are dead. And, and yet Jesus walked out of his prison. And now, maybe 50, 60 days later, his followers, the leaders of his followers, are put in a prison, and the next day, they walk out. No wonder they were perplexed. We couldn't stop the Jesus thing. Now we can't stop the follower thing. He walked out of his prison, they walk out of their prison. He preached to the masses. They're preaching to the masses. See the parallel? It's striking. 
Verse 25, and someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain, with the officers, went and brought them, not, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. The implication of that statement, verse 26, they went and got them, but not by force. They went, in other words, and requested that they come to see the leaders. The whole import behind this is because most likely the day before these people, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, good question. Did they see them preaching? A couple things about that. Most likely the the, the uh, leadership there gathered at a later time. They didn't gather at daybreak. They probably gathered together and make decisions at a later time. Uh, business typically start around 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning, uh, typically, traditionally. So they're probably a couple hours later. And you've got a picture. When we think about Temple Mount and think about the temple, we think about something maybe about this size. The place is massive. It's absolutely, the Temple Mount, if you ever look at it on a map, it's gigantic. It's probably maybe a block and a half by block and a half. And everything, if you see a picture of it now, it's kind of empty, there's a few people, not many, because heckle in control. And that day, the people had just screamed up there by the thousands all the time. So it's jamming people. Okay? Just jammed. So the idea that they could be up there on the Temple Mount and actually be able to see them, could they? Yeah, but could they recognize what's going on? Nah, probably not. Because there are people gathering all over the place, thousands of people, even during the week. So they went up every day. Now, obviously, the Sabbath day was the biggest day, but there's always tons of people. Okay, does that make sense? So just looking would not necessarily connect with them. But somehow, probably again, because God caused somebody to see it here in this verse, they saw, or the verse before, somebody saw them. Hey, look, there they are! And uh, recognized them and pointed it out to everybody. Everybody looked and, oh yeah, you're right. Kind of like if we were in a big crowd and we were looking for, if we were looking for somebody, but somebody sees somebody they know, and you know we're with ten people, and somebody sees somebody that we all know, and say, hey, look, there's Bill. It looks where? Right over there. There's Bill. Oh, there he is. I bet. So getting back to verse 27, they bring them, oh, I'm sorry, verse 26, 27, they bring them up, but they're afraid, verse 26, they're afraid of being stoned. Why is that? Because most of the people, many of the people who were up there, were up there the day before as well, because people go up there every day. And so they heard their preaching the day before, and they maybe even heard about and saw the Ananias and Sapphira thing, saw them being arrested, and the word went out about them being arrested because of thousands of people that are following the apostles' teaching, as well as others that are, many thousands are listening. And so the word went out that they were imprisoned, and yet when they came back the next morning, what did they see? The people were there preaching again. They were preaching and teaching again. And so if the, if the temple guard would come and seize them by power, why are they there listening to them? Because they're respecting them, and they are worshiping along with them, and being carnal, the temple guard, being lost, the temple guard afraid of what normal people would do. Right? 
you know, so they're ready to be stoned. So they just ask them, they request them, so they come forward. And of course, the apostles, they come with them. Opportunity, again, the sour, this is the whole thing of the sour view of God, bringing it all together for a very specific purpose. Verse 28, saying, we strictly, so they come, I'm sorry, verse 27, and when they had brought them to, to the council, um, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you, referring to the day before, we strictly charged you not to teach in his name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Interesting statements, isn't it? A couple of things that are really interesting about verse 28. The council says, firstly, we told you. Keep quiet about this. How did Peter respond the time before when they said, don't do it? He said, you've got to decide for yourselves what's right and wrong here. We've got to do what's right. Is that what he said? And then they, he, uh, he left them and went out to what? Preach. Well, here he said, the, the council says, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, and yet you've been doing it anyway. All over again. And not only that, but now you fill Jerusalem with your teaching. So let's stop on that for a second. It's interesting. Notice they don't even want to say Jesus' name, do they? You see that? They don't want to say his name. This name. They don't even want to acknowledge it. They don't want to give him the courtesy of using his name. And they do it twice. In the beginning. We strictly, we strictly charge not to teach in this name, and then, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon you, upon us. Now, they've already been arrested, haven't they? They've already been imprisoned. They've already been threatened. This is their third time, at least for Peter, third time in prison. John, second time in prison. When is enough enough? Right? So what, the, what, what, what do the apostles do with this? They're back in front of the of, in front of the leadership, the council. Most likely what's going to happen next is what? Imprisonment again. Imprisonment again, correct? What do they do? Verse 29. But Peter and the apostles. Up to this point, it's been mostly Peter, hasn't it? Right? But now, if Peter, verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, it's a, there's an immediacy of the answer. We must obey God rather than men, which is a, a, maybe a, a, a condensed version, probably that's what I put it, a condensed version of what they said the last time. We must obey God rather than men. In other words, what they just tell the most powerful body in Israel, you have no authority over us with regard to this. Now we talked about this in the last setting. How often today Christians cower in fear. People who name the name of Jesus cower in fear because of the what? Potential ramifications or consequences. And that happens over and over again. 
Because of potential ramifications and consequences, the typical Christian cowers in fear. What will happen if I? Which, by the way, establishes right away what kingdom we're after, does it not? Immediately it establishes what kingdom we're after. But what does Peter and the rest of the apostles do? Their first declaration is unequivocally, know this, leadership. We must obey God rather than men. What did the leadership just tell them? Here's what they told them. In Israel, this message must not be proclaimed. Is that what they told them? The second time they told them this. And there's already been ramifications. This message, we are the ultimate authority, and this message must not be proclaimed in Israel. And the Peter and the apostles' response was immediate, unequivocal, cannot be misunderstood when they said, we must obey God rather than men. Could I just stop with this and ask you a quick question? Is that your first thought? Is that my first thought? Do we have opposition to the gospel? I submit to you that's not the average Christian's first response with opposition to the gospel. I'll just take a step back and that. That's not the average Christian's first response when there's no oppression of God. That's not the average Christian's response when opposition is present. That's not even the first response when there's no oppression ever. The average Christian, the average quote follower of Jesus. Their first response, just when opportunity is there, is not. We must obey God rather than that. The average Christian's response, if I may be blunt and honest, is this. Man, if I say this, I may. Or this may. <clears throat> you know what that is? You know what that statement really is? If we are to blow it all the way to the still, that statement is, the cost is too great or too high. Which is nothing more than what Jesus said when he said, for the one who has to plant the plow and then go back, he what? If someone puts his hand on the plow and looks back, he is not worthy or fit to kingdom of God. That's, that's what Jesus said. And you know what looking back is? It's the cost is too high. If I do this and I say this, then looking back. That's what it means. It's looking back to what was and say, I don't want to lose that. It's even looking back to what is and saying, I don't want to lose that. It's looking forward to the theoretical what may be and saying, I don't want to lose what I have or what I may have. But saying the kingdom of God is not worth for the disciples, their initial response, immediate, in front of people who can do them great harm, is what? By the way, before you answer that, do you see the apostles get together and say, um, excuse me, Sanhedrin and council, could, could we have a little, our own little council to talk about how we'll, how we'll answer you? Do you see that there? No. You don't see it at all, do you? It's an immediate response. Peter and the apostles together all said, we must obey God rather than God. Which is nothing more than saying, bring your best shot. 
Here's what you gotta do. We're willing to pay the price. No price too high for the kingdom of God. Man, think about it. So again, I, I, I want to ask all of us to ask ourselves this really important question. Do we find ourselves, for example, you're hanging out with a friend, a loved one, and the friend says something, and something spiritual just pops into your mind. You ever had that happen? Something Christwardly pops into your mind. Do you find yourself discussing with yourself whether I should talk about it? That happens. And the, the after words are if. If. Because we fall into the trap of having this great great debate in our minds. Well, should I say it or shouldn't I? Because you know, it's 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 timing and it's it's how you say it. And you know, it all has to come together in order to really have what does it say about the salvation of God? What does it say about the power of the Holy Spirit? I mean, i got to tell you something. When I look at Peter's statement here, Peter the Apostle's statement, we must obey God rather than men. I can think of a billion and one different ways to say that would be much better. Maybe a billion and one is probably a little too high. I can think of a whole lot of ways that would be a lot better to say that. That probably could have helped me to escape uh, punishment. Even something like, well, you know, really appreciate what you said, but we need to think about it. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds a little comfortable, doesn't it? Can we get back to you on that? Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Or how about this one in my mind? I'm just not going to say anything. Then I'll go out and blow up my courage elsewhere. That sounds familiar? I just won't say anything. And then I'll go out and say, I say myself, I'll just. Glorify Christ and worship Christ at the same time. And I go up and you know what happens conveniently? It never happens, does it? And we go on with any other number of ways which we can deceive ourselves. They're all deceptions. If God is who God says He is, and if God is after something He says He's after in our lives, and He saved us for a purpose, and that purpose is not just to go to heaven, but it's to glorify Him and to worship Him and to glory in Him and to be lights in the midst of darkness, which is why He saved us, and all of several other reasons as well that are equally important. Then for the apostles, there's only one statement necessary, isn't it? It's going to be God rather than man. And it's based upon the idea that God is sovereign over all this. God is in control of all this. And if God wants them to be saved right now, what is he going to do? The Spirit is going to move in them and transform them, is he not? Even in spite of me, right? Even in spite of maybe my not best words, right? God's going to save who he's going to save? What is he going to save them? And so what has he told me? Just as you're going to what? Make disciples. <laughs> he says, when the Spirit comes upon you with power, you'll be my disciple, and Jerusalem should be a snare and a mirror. She said. And so if that's true, then for Peter the Apostle, the only thing left is the sovereign God who has saved us, 
has called us to a purpose. And that purpose is not what we always think it is. It is what? To be lights in the midst of darkness. So therefore, we must what? Obey God. I mean, that's where it it boils down to, doesn't it? That's what, if I may say it, folding back to chapter 1, verse 8, that's the place here of power. That's very essence. One other thing about this, we must obey God rather than men. I would argue, even though it sounds like it's very command-driven, I would argue it's not. You know what Peter and the Apostle really say? Because we are recipients of the gospel, Christ loves And because the Holy Spirit came upon us with power, the love of Christ controls us. We must have done that. It controls us. It's not commanding. It's just not. Listen, you've got to follow God, not men, which is what everybody says. No, this is driven by the love of Christ. This is driven by the fear of God. That's Peter, as Paul says, right? Because it's the love of Christ that controls me. Because I understand the fear of the Lord, I persuade men. We must obey God rather than men. In other words, what he's saying is, it's the fear of God that persuades me, not the fear of man. I'm being controlled by the love of Christ, not the love of men. You hear it? It drips out of the text when you think about it in the bigger context. He goes on. And now in verse 30, what is the next thing that Peter and the apostles do? The God of our fathers raised Jesus. Okay, God raised Jesus. And what did he what does Peter and the apostles say right after that? They respond to what the council said in verse 28. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. What what does Peter the Apostle say? Whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. What have they just said? You're right, Council. We intend to hang this man's accusation upon you. You are accountable and you will be judged. Again, could I just ask you a quick question? Is that bold? Is that rip your face off bold? Is Peter the Apostles a little are Peter the Apostles somewhat squeamish over this one? Are they nervous? Are they afraid of the ramifications? No. Because of the love of Christ. It must have been God not there. You're right, counsel. You said. Um, you intend you intend to bring this man's blood blood upon us you're right this man's blood is upon you but I want you to know something verse 31 if this isn't gospel I don't know what is God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior he has all authority. Do you hear Matthew 28 there? He has all authority, all power, leader, kingdom, kingdom terms, and Savior. To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. 
What did he in this in this statement by Peter the Apostle, which by the way is complete gospel, this is not a truncated gospel. It is brief, it's condensed, but it's pure gospel. And it starts out with what? God raised Jesus, who you killed. Is that not a statement of grotesque and horrible sin? Sin worthy of condemnation? You killed the one, the Redeemer. The Father raised him. God the Father raised him. And did what? Didn't just raise him from the dead, but what? Set him as leader and savior. And your only thing you can respond to is exactly opposite of how you responded up to this point. Up to this point, is you must not speak of him. You must not speak of any of these events. You must not hang it on us. The apostles say directly contrary. At this point in time, there's only one response to the program. That is that you repent and forgive of your The gospel of Jesus Christ is preached by Peter and the apostles clearly and completely, unequivocally, to the people who reply. And he goes on, verse 32, and we are witnesses of, uh, to these things. What thing? That Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again. We are witnesses of these, to these things. And then he goes on and says, and so is the Holy Spirit of God given to those who obey him. What do you mean by that? Real quickly, what he means by the Holy Spirit is the witness is not so much of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but the ramifications of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is he referring to? Let's do it again. So is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. So the witness of the Holy Spirit is the working of the Holy Spirit that is taking place. The miracles, the proclamation, the being released from prison, the salvation of thousands, the establishment of the church, on and on and on. That's the witness. It's evident that Peter and the apostles say, to, to these kind of this council, the leaders of Jerusalem, we are witnesses, we're standing before you as witnesses of Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit has witnessed it all over the place. You can see it. If you open your eyes, and you can only open them, of course, if the Spirit is moving, you will see clearly that this message is true. Now, the only thing left is an altar call, right? But what happens next? Verse 33. When the Sanhedrin, the council, when they heard this, they fell down on their knees and repented and turned to Jesus. Right? No. What happened? They were enraged and wanted to kill them. I'm going to stop at 33 just a second and point out to you. Remember when we said way back where both Mark and John? When you come in contact with Jesus, something happens. Right? Now, did these people come in contact with Jesus? The answer is yes. They came in contact with Jesus via the message of the apostles with the Holy Spirit. And once again, what do we find? We find there always is a response. Always a response to the gospel. In this case, the response to the gospel is that people, the council were enraged. And this is their very problem. 
and evidence that we struggle with the wrong kingdom. We want the wrong kingdom. Because we know, inherently, you and I know that when we preach the gospel, it's going to demand a response. Won't it? Every time, it's going to demand a response. And most times, the history of the scriptures are very clear. The response is not a good one. Most of the time, what happens? Rebellion, anger, abuse, verbal or physical, imprisonment, and death. Almost inevitable. Is it not? Why? Because they caught up in the wrong When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But again, look what happens. Verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, so he gave orders to put men, the men outside for a little while, outside the meeting, that is. And then he spoke. He said to them, not, not the apostles, but the, the council, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these people. And he mentions two people, Judas and uh, Judas, not Judas among a tree, not Jesus' disciple, another one. Both people, I'm going to sum it all up, both, both these people got a group of people that followed them and rose up, uh, and, and they were actually Messiah type of figures, rose up, claimed to be from God, they had followers, and yet ultimately both people were killed, and what happened? Everybody dispersed. The movement was over. And, and, and what Gamaliel is doing is connecting Judas and, and Judas to Jesus. Jesus got a group of people to follow him. He's now been killed. And what, what, what Gamaliel is arguing using Judas and Judas as an example is this. Verse 38. So in the present case, that is not Peter and the apostles, but with regard to Jesus... In the present case, the Jesus case, keep away from these men who are what? Followers, just like Judas and Judas had followers. These men are followers of Jesus. Let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail just like the last two did. It will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Now, it's important that we drill into this one a little bit. Because here's, here's the council's problem. Unlike a lot of movements all through history, religious movements all through history, the council had a problem. And the problem was huge. The problem was that what Jesus was doing and what the apostles were doing, where they were showing that all the Old Testament did what? They pointed to Jesus. Now, the council's authority was the Old Testament. And so, in other words, the council had no grounds to oppose Peter and the apostles. Just like they had no grounds to oppose Jesus. In other words, what I mean is they couldn't come to Jesus, they couldn't come to the apostles and argue from the Old Testament that they were wrong. They couldn't do it. So we can't, 
I've heard actually heard people take this passage and say that's why we shouldn't oppose Islam, that's why we shouldn't oppose uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and, and and the Mormons and all the rest of them. If it's if, if it's from God, let's see if it's not their own. No, we can oppose them based upon the authority, the authority being the Word of God. Gamaliel was pointing out the obvious: you can't oppose them by your by your law, by the Old Testament. You can't do it. If it's from God, it will stand. If it's not, it will what? Fall. And it will fail. You know, ultimately with Gamaliel, as an unsaved person, as a reprobate pagan Jew, is saying, he's saying, trust the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God will sort this out. So we, we start out with a, somewhat of a veiled dependence upon the sovereignty of God with the apostles, right? And now we've got a, a lost person who is also saying, depend upon the sovereignty of God. Don't kill these people like you killed the last two. You are messing, potentially messing around. This is being declared by someone who's not a follower of God. You are potentially messing with God's plan, God's program. So we see the apostle saying, I believe in God's plan, God's program. Is that what you see? You see the apostle saying, I'm depending upon, we're depending upon God's sovereign plan. We're depending upon God's plan being right and good, and he can do what he will as the sovereign God. We have a lost person saying, warning the rest of the council of lost people, be careful of the sovereignty of God. Don't mess with this. And then, what happens next? Um, let's see, where are we? Oh, up here. Okay, uh, if it be from God, verse 39, if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So it's interesting, Luke records it, so they took his advice. I guess they did because they didn't tell him, right? But they did do something, verse 40, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Christ and let them go. Let's stop there. Again, I feel the sovereignty of God. Can I just throw this out there? It is interesting. We have first the apostles depending upon, reminding themselves, and leaning on, absolutely committed to, the God we are sovereign. You have Gamaliel declaring the sovereignty of God, whether he realized the ramifications or not, probably didn't, but declaring the sovereignty of God. You've got a Christian, a Christian group, and you've got a pagan proclaiming and leaning on the sovereignty of God. But you know what you have? In between those two, you find most Christians don't. I would just say it that way. Most Christians don't. In other words, I find most people who claim Christ, who claim to be believers, are worse off than they are. That's pretty stunning, isn't it? That's amazingly stunning. That most Christians. Rather than being like the apostles, we must make God rather than men. And then preaching to the ones who just threw in prison, boldly, the complete gospel, unabashed and uncompromised. 
Unlike that, and unlike even Gamaliel, who's saying, Whoa, everybody stop! God is sovereign! If it's his plan and program is going to succeed, it's not alone. Unlike both those categories, most times Christians are, well, functionally speaking, well, I'm, I'm not sure, and I'm speaking functionally, not theoretically, I'm not really sure if God is sovereign. Not really sure. And again, I'm not sure I can trust it. I don't know. And I'm not sure I want to want to take the risk because I have a lot to lose. There's just the stakes are too high. Can I just remind you? Gamaliel is an unsafe person. He had to recognize. If they were all wrong, they said it, it was from God to succeed. And if it succeeds, the man is not stupid. If it succeeds, what does that mean for him and, 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 and the council? They're out of a job. They lose everything. Think the man of God. The average Christian today. Functionally speaking, we may, we may give a verbal assent to sovereignty, but functionally speaking, that's not the case. It's a stunning contrast. And then add to it how it goes on beyond 40. The people that we call the apostles as a group, what happened to them again, verse 40? They got flogged. And that's not a spanking. That's a cat of nine tails. Their backs are raw. They're bloody. They're in agony. They're ripped to shreds. 41. And they left the presence of the council. So they were flogged in the presence of the council. Then they left the presence of the council of what? Rejoicing. What were they rejoicing about? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor. Do you hear a group of people put their hands on the plow looking back? Do you hear a group of people who are worried whether the cost is too high? Do you hear a group of people who are, are saying this far no further? Or do you hear a people who are centered on the person of Jesus Christ? And they're being reminded as they're being flogged. They're being reminded of the suffering of Jesus. The suffering he endured. The cost he paid in being separated from the Father. Is it not what they're being reminded of? And as they walk away, it doesn't say that they got their wounds bandaged up and they finally were able to enjoy it. Does it? No, the structure of the sentence is as they're leaving, they're already the council is hearing them rejoice. That's what they're hearing. Just like Paul and Silas's prison guard heard them singing praises. As they're leaving, their back is still bloody. No scabs yet. They're walking out. They are counted worthy. That says, rejoice, they are counted worthy to suffer 
and they are set aflame. And the cost is not too high to us. The cost to perhaps lose a friend is too high. The cost to have an objection is too high. The cost of being ridiculed is too high. The cost to be mocked is too high. The cost to be trivialized is too high. The cost to lose status is too high. The cost to lose respect is too high. For the apostles, they must have been not ready. They should have a lot of Christ. My goodness, friends. This is a challenge. Who are we? Who are we? And yet the message of the gospel is screaming out. When, when the apostles said, the God of our Father raised Jesus whom you killed. And we did, didn't we? Really? Whom you killed. Hanging on a tree, God exalted him at right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel. And the scriptures describe as a spiritual Israel. To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness. I just say in closing this real quickly, if we find in the look at our lives and say, Yeah, I'm not like Peter. I'm not like the apostles. I'm not even like the Mary. <clears throat> All the text is he's come to give forgiveness. He is a merciful gracious God. So buckle your seatbelts. There's a cost to follow Jesus. There's a cost. There's a cost for him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord help us. It's too easy for us to get our eyes fixed on the kingdom of self. Which is also the kingdom of Satan. It's too easy for us to get caught up in our own world, our own lives, our own desires, separated from you. But all things in front of you, through you, to you, to you, before us, are bring to change our hearts. Draw us close. I pray, Lord, you will give us a spirit of power that will transform us so that we can only find ourselves saying we must obey God rather than the people in the right direction. Let's say the same, shall we?